Pastor Scott and lead pastor of the river. And really glad that you're checking out our uh, online podcast and our services and hope that you are blessed by this. Certainly, if you have any questions, if you're wondering about stuff that goes on here or maybe you're checking out our website more and seeing things that you uh, are wondering whether or not you might want to participate in them, feel free. Contact us in the office. Give us a call. Send us an email. Um, we'd love to hear from you. love to answer any questions that you have. Uh, we hope that you are blessed by what you hear on, on this podcast. We hope that God's Word continues to have power in your life. And we pray that uh, God makes himself known, that you know how much he truly, truly, truly loves you. Thanks for checking us out and uh, enjoy the service. From Romans chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Remember last week we talked about Paul's um, sort of admonition to the strong, the mature believers to uh, live into a loving relationship with those who are weak, not be stubborn and selfish in their own faith, in their own self-righteousness, and to live instead into uh, a life of love and grace into the lives of non-believers or into the lives of fellow believers, immature believers. This week he expands on that a little bit and includes more so than just non-believers. Um, and it's also, it's a strong admonition towards um, uh, yeah, living a life of love and grace in the world. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbor for their good, to build them up, for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Is there anyone else in the room who is a citizen of Canada? Anyone? Do I see any hands? Are you? Ross? You're a Canadian citizen. I had no idea. I like you better. 
And actually, that, that is sort of funny because all of a sudden, I see a kindredness with Ross that I never felt before. <laughs> I really do. And that's actually sort of what I'm talking about. And that is that with Canadianness, I'm Canadian. I was born in Ontario, Canada, but I was a, born to an American in Canada. So I actually have both citizenships. You have both? Oh, man, we are brothers. <laughs> that there, there is something about being Canadian that marks me so that when I hear someone else being Canadian or when I hear about something being Canadian, it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a little bit mine. That's a little bit me. There's this unity. So when I hear about like actors, Ryan Reynolds being uh, Canadians, uh, uh, what's his name, Jim Carrey being Canadian. Um, there's different singers and different actors over the years who've been Canadian. And when you hear about a Canadian actor or a Canadian athlete, like 70% of the LA Kings are Canadian. You should all know that. Just be clear, all right? Because there's something special about that to me because there's this unity with it. Now, I'm not taking any credit at all for Justin Bieber. I want to be clear about that. I want nothing to do with that because when he was 16 and living in Canada, he was clean cut, had nice songs, no tattoos, and got along with his neighbors. And then he moved here, so everything after that is the U.S.'s fault. Let me be clear about that. But there is something special in that Canadianness for me that when I hear about someone or something being Canadian, it's like, then that's, that's something that I'm almost together. It's a kindred with me. It's something that I, I feel compelled towards and something that I want to support or encourage. I'll go see a movie sometimes in part because I want to see how the Canadian is doing. I love seeing that sort of thing happen, seeing Canadians flourish. What Paul is talking about this morning in this text, it, it's got a little bit of that sort of vibe. It's got a little bit of that going on in it that gives this compulsion towards unity, certainly, that's clearly, but also more of a kindredness, a warm-heartedness towards other believers, but then also in how we together in unity with other believers engage the world around us and what brings the great power of God into those sorts of things. Now, if you read this first section, verses 1 through 4, I hope you hear some pretty strong language against self-centeredness. And I hope you hear that for your life in the same way that I hear it for mine. Listen again, especially when we get to verse 2. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbor for their good to build them up. Now, hear me here. That's pretty stark language. It doesn't say you build yourself up so that you can help your neighbor. It doesn't say you worry about your own needs so that your neighbor can see that with Christ everything is good with you. 
It says that we are to worry about the needs and the wants and the desires of our neighbor and as best as we are able to engage in life with them so that we help and assist them in making those things happen. This is a stark contrast to often how we live life in our culture, which is I need to focus on my needs and what I'm doing. I need to make sure that I'm okay in everything that I want. And then maybe when things get good enough, then I can focus on others. Paul's command here is in stark contrast to that. It is affirming Paul's message that has been over and over again in the book of Romans to become a living sacrifice, to give up yourself, to die to yourself, the language that Paul has used in previous chapters of Romans, to die to yourself and to serve others. That's pretty heavy-duty stuff. And the thing is, that's hard for us. It's hard for us to do that because we know what we think, we know what we want, we know how things should be, and if I give up myself for another, then things aren't going to be how I think they should be. And our self-centeredness kicks in again. Anyone who tells you that being a follower of Jesus is, is easy is selling you a bill of goods because it's not. To give up yourself, to die to yourself, to live sacrificially is a hard task. And it calls us to a breaking of ourselves that we don't want to do. But here's the thing that Paul affirms in the text. Christ did that. And that's one of the reasons why we're called to it. Christ did this for us, our sake. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you, you have fallen on me. Christ himself shows us this is how we are to live. Imagine, imagine how that happened. Christ, the one who is the firstborn of all creation, the one who is older than time itself, united with the Father and the Holy Spirit, he sat there in Jerusalem and took a flat-out beating. He took a whipping, took a crown of thorns on his head, took people hurling insults at him. This is one who at the snap of his fingers created Andromeda, the constellation. And yet he's sitting back taking someone's spit on his face. And then he calls you and I to do likewise. To go out and die to yourself. He took it. But then the text actually shows us why he took it. And why we can take it. And that is the power of Christ's word and what it reminds us of. Christ knew the story. In fact, he lived in the story. Christ is in the story of God all through the Old Testament. Everywhere you see, you see Jesus. And Christ knew that story and he knew that that story told of the faithfulness of God through his covenant promises to his people. He knew that there were times when God's people had walked away the entire book of Judges. Each person did what was right in their own eyes and yet they finally cried out to God and what happened? God heard them. 
They, Christ knows that no matter how far things get off track, that God is faithful to his people. And not only is God faithful, but he's active in redeeming them right now in creation, in culture, in all things. God is active. Christ knew that so he could take it. And the best part is he also knew, he knows the end of the story. Because at the end of the story is an absence of pain and suffering, of torture, of spit on the face. It's complete absence. It's an opposite of that, and that is God's glory. Christ knows that there is a day that comes that we are all, as believers, united together in Christ, in his presence for all eternity, without pain, suffering. There is no tears shed. Cancer is lost. Brokenness, injustice, a racial racial tension. All those things are gone away because we are in the presence of the living God where there is only love and grace. Christ knows the end of the story. When you know and understand the end of the story, getting a slap in the face, a whip on the back, a spear in your side, or a tomb with your name on it, when you know that is your future, it helps you strengthens you and encourages you to weather that storm. Christ knows this. He knows the end is amazing. And we're called to this too. In verses 5 and 6, we hear that same phrase that is in uh, the earlier section in verse 4 about endurance and encouragement in relation to God's word. God gives this now to us, his people. He gives this to his people in Rome. Gives you this same attitude of mind coming out of God's word towards each other that Jesus Christ had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that together we have been given. We know the story. We know the future. We know it's sure. And we can trust in that. And that unites us. That unites us with the African church. That unites us with the church in places of persecution where Islam is persecuting the Christian church. It unites us as we think about some of the challenges that we face in our own culture. When we think about things like the dialogue right now around Planned Parenthood, the dialogue right now about gay marriage. When we think about all of those big, hard, challenging things, we know that we are united together in the story of God and Jesus Christ that reminds us that God is always faithful to his people, that God always always shows love, grace, and his power into all things, and that the future is that we experience all that goodness and that beauty with him for eternity in the presence of the living God. It empowers us then to go through the challenging, hard, and difficult things. But we have to oftentimes decide how we're going to do that. And there's really two ways that we can do that. And we see two ways in our culture. Very quickly, when it comes to how we as a church engage with the world around us, do we engage in unity, grace, and love, or otherwise? Here's what happens sometimes. What happens, we see these things of Planned Parenthood. We see some of these things that some of you think are heinous. Some of you may think otherwise. I'm not getting into that. 
But we see those things. And what happens oftentimes when it comes to the Christian church? We create a line in the sand, right? If you believe what we believe, you're on this side of the line. And if you believe not what we believe, then you are on the other side of the line. And you can think about that in a whole lot of things. You can think about that in some of the church wars that we've experienced. You can think about that just in how we engage in a lot of stuff as Christendom. We create barriers. We create walls. We create lines. And we have to debate. We have to confront. We have to create this sense of us and you. And our job is to fight against you so that you do not take over what we believe to be true. But I want to throw this challenge out to you. How does that work in your marriage? Does that work well? I don't, I've been married for over 20 years. And I can tell you, if Kristen and I draw lines in the sand, and we're going to say, me versus you... That fight's going to go on for a long time, and it's generally not going to go well. It's when we instead drop the line, erase the line, and embrace reconciliation that comes through love and grace that there's a change of heart. Her heart's changed because she's wrong. My heart's changed because I'm wrong. Why? Because we're engaged in a relationship of love, understanding, and grace. We want, we want the world to be transformed for Jesus Christ. I want people in the Democratic Party who don't know Jesus to know Jesus. I want people in the Republican Party who don't know Jesus to know Jesus. I want people who are pro-abortion to know Jesus in the same way that I want people who are pro-life to know Jesus. I want people who are pro-gay marriage to know Jesus in the same way that I want people who are anti-gay marriage to know Jesus. And I don't do that best by creating lines in the sand that create walls of us and them and saying that's how they're going to come to know Jesus. How do I know that? Because that's not what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Jesus died to himself. He died physically. Why? Because he knew that the power of love and grace that was made manifest in him showing love and grace to another had more power than him pounding on the wall saying, I'm right, you're wrong. He broke down the wall. In fact, that's an overarching image of the New Testament that Christ breaks down the wall. And we see that. Here, even in this text, we see him showing us that in his relationship, in one of the biggest confrontations of his day. Now, what's that big confrontation? Well, we think, when we think crucifixion, it's the cross... It's the whole conflict between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. And that certainly was one. Don't argue that. I'm not going to argue that at all. But there's an even bigger confrontation going on. It's the whole confrontations between Jews 
and Gentiles. It's the whole Rome versus Israel thing going on. That's a much bigger one. The reason why Jesus was crucified was because the Pharisees were concerned that if Jesus rose to power, that that whole Jew-Gentile thing was going to mess up, get messed up, and the Jews were going to be killed. That's one of the fundamental reasons why Jesus was crucified, because it scared the Pharisees and how they would relate to Rome. It's the big confrontation. And how did Jesus enter into that confrontation? How did Jesus show up in this big division, this big confrontation between the Jews and the Gentiles? Well, let's look at this. In verse 8, it reminds us of the power of God's love in Christ. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant on the Jew, of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Remember, Jesus is Jewish. He lived into that Judaism. And so when he was living as a Jew, he could have perpetuated that confrontation between Jew and Gentile. But what does he do instead? He dies to himself for God's purpose. So that what? What's one of the beautiful symbols of the crucifixion? It's the curtain of the temple tearing in two, opening up the door to God that all might be present. Not just the priest one day a year, not just the priestly line of Levi who could come and be in the temple, not just the Jewish men who could be in the first circle, not just the Jewish women who could be in the next circle of the temple, not just the Gentiles who could be in the next court. All those walls were broken down so that all might have access to God. Christ in his work as a Jew was fulfilling all of God's promises, not only to the Jews, but to the whole world. He was taking the power of that confrontation away. And think about it. Think about who this book is written to. We always wonder, who is Paul writing to when he's writing Ephesians or Corinthians? He's writing this book of Romans. Who is he writing to? We know that he's writing to a bunch of Gentiles in Rome. But you know, he's also writing to a bunch of Jews. They were exiled from Rome, and then they came back. The people that he's writing to is a group of Jews and Gentiles who are living together in the same church, trying to figure out how to get along. The work of Christ to reconcile the great confrontation of his day has already begun, so much so that they're trying to figure it out and live in relationship together in the body of Christ. How beautiful is that? How beautiful that Christ's work of love and grace, not confrontation, love and grace, has shown its power even in the decades after his death. So the church he's writing to in Rome is already transformed. It's not a synagogue. It's not just Jews. It's not a temple. It's not just Gentiles. It's the church. Jews and Gentiles living in relationship together because that's the power of love and grace. It actually works and changing people's lives. Christ has brought reconciliation to the Jew-Gentile relationship through what? Standoffishness? Creating a super PAC that fights against things? 
creating a focus group or a Facebook page that claims what we stand against, confrontation, getting on lines across from the others who have a line and yelling things back and forth, debate and conflict because of it. No. Christ's great power is love and grace. And that's real power. Because love and grace change lives. They don't just change behavior. They change hearts and souls. And they get to the root of everyone's need to seek out anything and everything else until it follows Jesus. That's what love and grace does is it brings the power of the knowledge of Jesus into someone's life. And that's what changes things. It's not anger, it's not frustration, it's love and grace. And then these four quotes of scripture that Paul gives to us, they actually give us a little bit of an opportunity of learning and how we do this. First one is this, it's from the book of Samuel and the quote is, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name. What I think about when I think of that is praise among that we live a life of worship around others who don't know Jesus. Folks, we're not the frozen chosen. We're not the folks who have walls around our church and we don't have an entry gate with a code on it that you only know if you're a member. We go out from this place carrying with us the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And when we carry that into the lives of non-believers and live it out, when you live out the challenges that you live in your workplace, your neighborhood, your family, and you live it out in praise to God, that has power when you're surrounded by non-Christians. They wonder about what it is that is special and unique to you. You don't know how many times we get questions Because people know I'm a pastor and I don't even always have to live right. I can just tell people I'm a pastor and they're like, what is that all about? But it has even more power when we live and praise to God. People wondering about what it means. What is this hope? What is this thing? What is this? What do you do in church? Why is this special? What's unique about this? This has power when we live in relationship among non-believers. The second thing is this. This quote is this from... What is it? Psalm, sorry, Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. It's an invitation to praise. You hear that? Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people is an invitation. So we're in relationship with people, praising among them, and we say, would you like to come? Come into relationship with Jesus. Come into his presence. Come be with me in a community of of people who know and love Jesus. A small group that we're a part of. A barbecue that we're having. A church activity. A church service we're going to. Would you like to come? Inviting people into a relationship with Jesus. Into an invitation of praise. The third quote from Psalm 
117 is this. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. It doesn't just stop with the Gentiles. It says, let all peoples. It means we're praising with. It means we're engaged in a relationship of unity with those people now. We've gone from praising among them, being unique among a group of non-believers, to inviting them into relationship, and now we're praising with them. And in that praise, God's power shows up. It's a relationship of love and grace that they can experience the power. It's not you're wrong, I'm right. It's we're praising and experiencing Jesus' love and grace together. And then finally, the root of Jesse from Isaiah will spring up. One who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will, what? Hope. So it moves even beyond a relationship of praise that God has grown that relationship to a point where it's now a relationship of hope. They have enough knowledge, enough understanding of who Jesus is that now they're not just saying, praise you for what you're doing now. But because you've done what you've done now and in the past, I can now hope that you will continue to be that God to me in Jesus Christ in the future. It's hoping together because there's enough understanding about who Jesus is. It's this process. Going in among, inviting into relationship with, and then growing together to the point of knowing the full source of our hope. Jesus Christ in relationship with those people who are no longer non-believers. Now they're part of the family of Jesus Christ. Now this is hard because it calls us into unsafe, challenging, difficult places. And some of you know just how difficult that is. There's messiness when we come in contact in the world contact with the world. But I'll tell you, there's enough messiness in my own life that it shouldn't scare me that much. Messiness shouldn't stop us from engaging in relationship with people who don't know Jesus. Because we know the end of the story. We know that God has been faithful throughout the story. So what are our next steps? Well, here's your first step. And that stop being so doggone selfish. You and I often think the way we know it to be true is the only way it is. And everyone else should believe this way. And if they don't, they are wrong. Stop being so selfish. And someone said it to me between services. Maybe it's stop being so self-righteous. The truth is that God's grace is bigger than you and I and our knowledge and understanding of it. The church is bigger bigger than our knowledge and understanding of it. The scriptures are bigger than what we understand to be true. All of these things are of God and Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. And if they are of God, they are bigger. And for us to claim we have an understanding that is the final one. And if you don't believe it, then you're wrong and I'm right, betrays the fact that we think we've got it right. And if we think we've got it right, then maybe we just don't know Jesus. Because Jesus reminds us that you can't get it right. That's why you need me. The second point is love your enemies. Really love them and all of them. Those people who are on the other side of a line that you've created, 
And if that's a line of faith and understanding, if that is a line that you would delineate based upon what they have done or the things they believe or the things that they do, understand that your drawing that line is not going to create reconciliation. Love and grace is. Now, I know that there's a whole discussion of boundaries. That's why this is complex. That's why this is hard. We got to walk that through and figure all that stuff out. But you and I drawing lines in the sand and saying us and them when it comes to things of faith and the church and following Jesus is not helpful. It's destructive. And I would even say it's disobedient. Love and grace, again, become the method of crossing those lines and engaging in that relationship among those around us. Finally, live into a life of worship around those who don't know Jesus. It's the first step of Christ using you to bring them into the hope of his grace. When you and I live into those relationships, Christ can transform those people around us to a knowledge of Jesus that we don't even think, we don't even understand that God is capable of until he shows up and he does it in us. But the first step is to call us into that relationship. A couple months ago, I uh, shared with you a little bit of the story of Josh Hamilton. Josh Hamilton is a right fielder for um, now the Texas Rangers. He had played for the Texas Rangers for a number of years, and then the Anaheim Angels, now back to the Texas Rangers. Josh Hamilton's story is quite a story. It's a story of addiction, um, heroin and alcohol, drugs of choice, and they, especially in the early part of his career, were really messy, ugly things that consumed him and broke him and forced him to leave baseball for a time. 2000, I think in nine, he got clean. He really found some good things that opened up a whole new world of cleanliness and holiness to him and walking with God, and it was through the work of the grace of Jesus Christ. 2010, he was actually the AL MVP. If you're ever online um, on YouTube and you want to watch something fun, watch his uh, Josh Hamilton's All-Star Game Home Run Derby. Uh, he has a record for the number of home runs in a home run derby ever. It was pretty amazing to watch. He just kept killing these 400-footers out in right field. It was fun to watch. Great couple of years with the Rangers, and then he got moved to the Angels. He was traded there. Things didn't go so well. He had a couple injuries. Stats were not what they needed to be. He had a relapse early on, uh, actually near the end of his time with the Rangers with drugs and alcohol, but he stepped away from that and stepped into cleanliness again. Then last year, I think it was in about February of this year, he made clear to those in the league office that he had relapsed again. And as a result, somewhat of that relapse and also some of the injuries and stat problems with the Angels, he was traded back to the Rangers. And then I saw an interview recently that he had with the Texas Rangers when he's with the Texas Rangers. And it's funny because it's about a 25-minute interview. And in that 25-minute interview, he never once mentions the name of Jesus. But what's incredibly powerful is that he is marked completely in that conversation by Jesus. He never says the name Jesus, but it's clear that every word is dripping with Jesus. He apologizes for his relapse to fans. The consequence of this relapse is actually a divorce from his wife, some issues with uh, custody of their kids. He's feeling the consequence of his brokenness and his sin. 
But the beautiful thing about this is that he is desperately now, even more so than he was before, holding on to Jesus. And what, what the interesting part that I want to share with you about his story is that although management has always, not always, but sometimes had an issue or had a concern with Josh Hamilton's um, addictions and some of the things, well, is he going to be able to play or is he going to get kicked out, all that other sort of stuff. Is that ever going to happen? Management has had those concerns. You know who never has? The players. The people that he is on the field with. And he talked about that because he talked about how he interacts with the players that he's in the clubhouse with every day. He talks with them about life. He lives into the brokenness that he experiences. He shares with them, you know, he's, he, he talks about rookies coming into the league and how he just wants to hear them to hear from him the challenges that they face and how much they need community love and support around them. The interesting part about Josh's story is that although I hear it and I lament the fact that he deals with the consequence of addiction and of his sin and of his divorce and all that other sort of stuff, I lament that. I hurt for him for that. I'm also greatly encouraged because he is a follower of Jesus living among a whole group who don't know him. And he is having an impact. They cherish their relationship with Josh. There's actually one player who said, now that Josh is on the Rangers, I need to be back on them. I want to trade back to the Rangers. I want to be with Josh. Why? Because of that relationship that we have. Other players in the clubhouse being encouraged constantly by who Josh is. I hear that story and I want to live into that more. What's your clubhouse? Where's the place where God has called you to live out this messy, crazy life that you have, but live knowing that God is with you, he is always with you, and the end of the story is beautiful. So no matter how hard and messy and challenging the story will be, you know God's presence is God and God's love, and you are in that story with a whole bunch of messy, crazy people here at the river and otherwise who are walking through it with you. How does that empower you to live God's love and grace through Jesus Christ into your clubhouse. And when that clubhouse is made clear to you, are you willing to do it? Are you willing to die to yourself? Am I willing to sacrifice being self-righteous for the sake of Christ using me to change the lives of those around me with his love and his grace? Not just truth that I speak with a hammer fist, but love that I live with open arms it can change their world, change my world, change the world for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Living God, hope of the world, you have equipped us through the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ to live into the sacrifice to dying to self. And that is hard, Lord. means we do need to give up our self-righteousness, that we need to go into messy, dark places, that we need, instead of staking claim to what is right, staking claim instead to the one who is righteous, that we hoist our flag instead of whatever, 
we hoist our flag that says love, grace, Jesus. That others might see us living that out, that love and that grace in a powerful way that brings them into contact with you because we're not the ones who do the work you do. But you call us to carry you with us wherever we go that others might see. Father, may we be encouraged, empowered, and strengthened to that end. You're the only one who can do it in us. We pray these all, all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.